Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com lessons from the world's top professors anytime any place world history examined and science explained this is one day university welcome You're listening to episode three of Half Hour History, Secrets of the Medieval World. I'm your host and resident history nerd, Mike Coscarelli. Last episode, we witnessed the fall of Rome and the rise of the Vikings and Islamic rule. Now, we're moving into Charlemagne's cultural golden age. A renaissance, if you will. Take it away, Chris. You think of Renaissance and everybody thinks of uh, the Da Vinci Code and Italian Renaissance and all of those things. And there have been many Renaissances in history. The word Renaissance is actually a French word. It means nothing other than um, rebirth. The word nativity, which is another word for Christmas, um, is related to that word naissance or rebirth. And so we're going to have a Renaissance right in the middle of the early medieval period, which though I don't like the phrase Dark Ages, I will admit is dimmer than certain other centuries. And the story of the Carolingian Renaissance, the Renaissance under Charlemagne, Carolus Magnus, actually takes us back a few centuries to someone that we mentioned earlier named Clovis. Clovis is a tribal uh, chieftain, and he is in control of the area of what had been Roman Gaul, or Germania. And Clovis converts to Christianity around 503. Now, some people say, did he really convert to Christianity or did he convert to Christianity because his wife, there are some members of his family who had been sick, who came back um, to health miraculously. We're never going to know what was in Clovis's heart, just like we're never going to know what was in Constantine's heart when he begins to favor Christianity around 312. And did 10,000 of his warriors convert as well? 
Um, is that just a made-up number? Did they really convert, or did they follow the faith because he told them to? We're never going to quite know, and there's a level at which the historian can never quite know. But be that as it may, it happened. And because it happened, and because um, the energy of the empire was now in Constantinople in the east, the power of Christianity and the, and the energy begins to get married with northern Europe. And that energy is sitting there for several hundred years, and it gets a big boost in 732, something we just saw in the prior topic when Charles Martel, Charlemagne's grandfather, is the defensor fidei, the defender of the faith or Christianity, and he pushes the Muslims back at the Battle of Poitiers in 732. Now what happens after that is very quickly the city of Rome, under the authority of the Bishop of Rome, enters into a relationship with the heirs of Clovis and Charles Martel. Charles Martel's son is named Pepin. Sometimes it comes up as Pippin in the sources. And he was not very tall. He was called Pepin the Short. And he was in a battle with some other tribal chieftains, and he appeals to the Pope. The Pope was named Zachary here. And he says to the Pope, listen, who is in charge up here? The person who has the paper claim or the person who has the real power? And Zachary decides, it's you. It's the person who has the real power. And this is a decision that's going to have profound implications because now Pepin owes his authority to the Pope, and the Pope now has kind of a partner when he needs some help. And so Zachary declares Pepin king, and Pepin, in thanks, gives... Uh, the Pope some land in Central Europe, uh, Central Italy, that will be called the Papal States. And that land in Central Italy is probably the same patch of land that Constantine had originally given to the Church in the 300s, what's sometimes called the Donation of Constantine. And even though the piece of paper um, is a forgery, was proved to be a forgery in the 1400s, Still, it is very clear that what you have is a military political person endorsing a certain religious leader and the religious leader endorsing the political person back. And this all comes together under Charlemagne. Now, his name wasn't Charlemagne. His name was Charles, Carl, Carolus. In Latin, Carolus Magnus. Charlemagne becomes the French version of that. And so he gives his name to this period called the Carolingian period. Charlemagne had a very long reign, very long life. And what happened was that a pope, a very unpopular pope in Rome named Leo III, was ousted by his own people in the year 799. And this pope, Leo, reaches back to that relationship between Zachary and Pepin and says, hey, I need some help. Down comes Charlemagne into Rome, puts Leo back in power, and on Christmas Day in the year 800, Leo, in thanksgiving, crowns Charles the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, in the sources, Charles says, oh, gee, if I had known he was going to make me emperor, I never would have shown up in his chapel. It's a completely unbelievable idea. And Leo anoints Charles. He gives him purple robes. The purple is the color of the Roman emperor, and a crown and a scepter. And so now we have this question, who is more powerful? Is it the emperor who actually has the physical power, or is it Leo? 
Leo has the religious power, but Leo wouldn't be standing there if it wasn't for Charlemagne. And so Charlemagne becomes a patron of the church. And Charlemagne's son, Louis the Pious, listen to that title, right? The Pious obviously protected the church as well. And that empire lasted for quite some time, but Louis's children uh, quibbled among themselves and that empire collapses. So we have a Carolingian renaissance of roughly um, 100 years, 750 to 850, and the high point is that anointing on Christmas Day in the year 800. Well, Charlemagne, in the aftermath of that anointing, wraps himself in what we call the iconography of political theology. There's a phrase, huh? Iconography, illiterate population. If you have an illiterate population, what I see is what I know. And political theology, a phrase that makes Americans and modern people very uncomfortable, is de rigueur at that time. From the ancient times, political power and religious power had come together. And so what Charles does is he wraps himself in the mantle of Constantine. He says, I am the new Constantine. In fact, he calls his capital at Aachen the Tertia Roma. Remember, we had Rome, and then the Nova Roma, Constantinople. And so Charles says, well, it's been transferred up into Aachen, or the Tertia Roma, or the Third Roma. And he strikes a seal using words that had been used by Constantine. A little bit of Latin here. The seal reads, Dominus noster carolus imperator pius felix perpetuus augustus, our Lord Emperor Charles, pious, happy, Augustus forever. And that seal has the city of Rome with a cross and Aachen as well, making a marriage. And on his coins, Charlemagne's coins, he depicts himself as a Roman emperor with laurel leaves and the words religio Christiana, Christian religion, and renovatio Romani imperii, the renewal of the Roman Empire. It never died, but now we're going to give it a booster shot and return it again. So for Charlemagne, the city of God, Augustine's city of God, has been incarnated in his empire. He calls it a Christian society, a societas Christiana in the sources. And he wears titles in, in his documents, and when he, is, he walks into a room and they call out his titles, and some of these titles may shock us. The Vicar of Christ, the Vicar of St. Peter, the Rector of the Christian people, the Rector of True Religion, Priest and King. And so you see that he is putting himself on par, maybe a little higher than, that Bishop of Rome. You can see that there's going to be tension. And we're going to see this tension in later um, topics where we talk about nation building and papal monarchy. Okay, that's the politics. What's the Renaissance? Cliffhanger. Ooh. Chris answers that question when we come back from a quick break. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. 
smart enough to anticipate your needs even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. What's the cultural renaissance in this period? Like all renaissances, you reach back and you push forward. We have to reach back a little bit to before uh, Charles to understand the spiritual engine that fuels his Christian society, and it's Benedictine monasticism. So we have to talk about Benedictine monasticism. And I need to point out that when you look at the sources of this period, whenever they refer to monks, they also mean nuns. Whenever they refer to monasteries, they also refer to convents. So if you ever hear anyone say, the monks prayed eight times a day, so did the nuns. And we should say, too, that in this period, these folks are mostly lay people. Instead of taking formal vows of poverty chastity, and obedience, what some members of religious orders today call no money, no honey, and a boss. Those vows aren't formalized until about 1100. They take promises. And the most important promissio is stabilitas, that they're going to spend their lives in that monastery or that convent and work on a conversion of their own heart, a conversio morum, and a conversion of their entire spirit. And the key person here is Benedict, Benedict of Norcia. And Benedict um, uh, is uh, living around the year 500. He's one of these late antique characters like Augustine, a Roman in his training, but a Christian in his heart. His most famous abbey is the Abbey of Monte Cassino, which was bombed uh, by the Allies in World War II and then rebuilt. And there he writes his rule, or his regula, Now, it was not original. There had been rules floating around that period for several hundred years, but Benedict was an administrator, and he took all of these rules here, and he says, what's good about them and what's bad about them? Let's dial up what's good. Let's get rid of what's bad. And they're very practical, and and they have these Roman values in them, like mediocritas. Now, mediocritas, mediocrity, right, is a bad word in in our society today. How was the meal? Eh, it was mediocre. It was okay, right? Italians say, oh, it was cumsi cumsa. It was okay. Mediocritas in this world, in the Roman and early medieval world, 
is a virtue. It means you're steady. It means to be like EMTs or nurses, doctors, firemen are today. In the midst of crisis, they stay medium, in the middle. They are in control of their emotions. They're not cold fish, but they are in control of their emotions. And it, the rule, instead of being rigid, yes, the rule says you pray at these times and you do these tasks, but the abbot and the abbess have great discretion. If they see a monk or a nun who's having a bad day, they tell them to take the day off. They're allowed to know when to push and when to pull, when to ebb and when to flow. And this is the great gift of Benedict to religious life, this notion of discretio. So what is a day like in a medieval, early medieval monastery or convent? This is going to be the, the stabilizing force that Charlemagne is really going to emphasize because he's going to look at monasteries and convents as stabilizing forces in his empire. The key is the prayer life. Now the prayer life is the opus dei. When you say that immediately some people say, wait a second, isn't there a religious uh, kind of community in the Catholic Church today called opus dei? Yes, there is. That's not what we're talking about. Opus dei literally means the work of God. And the work of God is to pray. That's your job as a monk or a nun. And that prayer was eight particular times in a day. And those prayers go on and on. And the most famous one that a lot of people know is Vespers, or called Evensong. And this is in Protestant churches as well as Catholic churches nowadays. Back in our own period, we're all Christian. We don't have that Catholic-Protestant split for another thousand years. And Vespers or Evensong is something that a lot of people have attended, even if they're not believers, because some great composers um, have written Vespers services. And what do they do the rest of the time? They read and they study individually and together. There's a sense of a community trying to help each other. And they work. And this was one of Benedict's great uh, contributions, because in the Roman world, slaves worked. But what Benedict does is he sanctifies work. And this is going to be important later on in something called the 12th century Renaissance, that my work is my prayer. Why? Because Jesus worked. Jesus had a trade. Because Mary worked. She had to make bread. She had to take care um, of the house. And there's something sanctifying about it. Plus the fact that a monastery or a convent has to be self-sufficient. And so it needs to make its own bread. It needs to uh, grind its own uh, grain. And it needs to make its own wax and candles. It needs to make vellum. It needs to make ink. And also, I think as we all know, you can't study all day long. Um, even when you're in graduate school or you're working on a degree or you're reading, you have to get up and you have to move around and you have to turn your brain off. And sometimes your brain keeps working in interesting ways when you're doing physical labor. What was the key to monastic spirituality? What was monastic theology like? Well, it usually gets a bad name. You know, we have this notion um, from movies like Monty Python and the Holy Grail that monks just kind of lamented the Psalms all day long and knocked themselves on the head and whipped themselves. And it's all very silly. The big aspect of study and prayer in the medieval convent and monastery was this notion that there is an authority to the Word of God. And there's something that I think we've lost in the modern world, and that's intellectual humility. Yes, we want to understand things. We want to push the um, envelope out, and we're going to see that in a later topic 
um, called scholasticism or scholastic theology, which gets very aggressive. And, and you need both of those, right? You need to come to a point when you study, when you say, well, I can't explain this anymore, because how do you explain the love of God? How do you explain the fact that Jesus is fully human and fully divine without being, you know, a 200% uh, creature? It comes a point where there are mysteries. And the monk and the nun will defer to those mysteries much more readily than a scholastic theologian. And there's a reverence for the texts. And this is why the copying of texts becomes so important in the monastery. To write out the texts is to read the words. And to read the words is to pray the words as well. And let's remember that nuns are doing this as well. So nuns had a higher rate of literacy um, than women who were outside of the convent. And so what does Charlemagne do with this monastic Benedictine tradition to add to his Renaissance? What he does is he marries this structure of Roman imperial administration with Christian morality. And he says, I want my society to be Christian. I need to send out word of how to organize the society and how people should act so that we have law and order. And these words are sent out in books organized by chapters. The Latin word for chapter is capitula. And so these collections of books are called capitularies. So there are rules on marriage. There's rules on crime. There are rules on how people interact with each other in terms of buying and selling. Inheritance, what happens when things go wrong. Negotiations, criminal and civil actions, law and order and punishment. And the people who get sent out are legates or messengers. They're called the Missi Dominici, the messengers of the Lord, the Lord being the the emperor here who is Charlemagne. And these people themselves reach back into history and they say, well, let's see, we have Roman learning, but Roman learning is mythological and mythology from Greco-Roman times is polytheistic. How does that work with Christian monotheism and the belief in this God, man, Jesus? And again, they reach back and they find one of these late antique characters, one of whom is named Cassiodorus, an exact contemporary of um, Benedict. He was a Roman aristocrat, and he said, well, there's no problem here. You can read the pagan classics, and you can read the Christian classics, and you can learn certain skills of rhetoric, of logic, of organization from the pagans, and you simply apply them to Christian morality. And in fact, his most famous book is called An Introduction to Divine and human readings. Well, this is great for Charlemagne because it's exactly what he's trying to do. He's trying to recreate the Roman imperial structure, but he's trying to do it in a Christian context using Christian values. And so now we begin to find not only in Charlemagne's kingdom, but elsewhere as well, people doing precisely this. Up in England, a character by the name of the Venerable Bede, Now, he's not venerable in any formal Roman sense nowadays where you you venerate um, a servant of God. Venerable, he was called venerable in his own day. People just, you know, people in your life who everyone says, that person is just wise. And so he was known as the Venerable Bede. And he was an English Benedictine, someone who was living in a monastery who spent most of his life between two monasteries, Wermuth and Yarrow, and he collected documents. He read these documents, he copied them, and he wrote his own histories. And the most famous one is called the Ecclesiastical History of the English People. 
And so Bede is doing at the most famous level what monks and nuns are doing all over this Carolingian empire and also down in Italy as well, some of which was controlled by Charlemagne. They are organizing libraries, places where you do the script, a scriptorium, in plural, a scriptoria, and they're copying texts. Now, I'd like to make two points about those texts. The first is that we think we have, from the Greco-Roman world, about 20% of what was written. In some cases, we have lists of books, but we don't have all of the books. So we might have a list of 70 or 80 plays by Aeschylus, but we only have in hand about 10 or 12 of them. It would be having, like having a library burned down, but still having the card catalog. You know those books existed at one point. Well, those 20% of Greco-Roman texts exist almost exclusively in the handwriting of early medieval monks and nuns. Without them, we would have lost touch with that ancient world. And so what we look at as this very tedious work is actually an act of devotion and an intellectual action as well. But it's important to know that monks and nuns are not really challenging those texts. They're transferring those texts to a later period that scholastic theologians will then challenge. So let's look upon these two things as partnership and not competition. The other point that I wanted to make was the physical um, copying itself takes place in very careful handwriting. There have been studies of handwriting. The study of handwriting is called paleography, and it is a study in its own right. Some of you have been to museums or you've opened books and you see these ancient Greek or Roman texts, and you can't make any sense of them. That's because there's no punctuation in ancient Greek and in ancient Latin. All the words run together. And when you come to the end of the line, if your word isn't finished, you just wrap around to the next line. If you've ever seen a three or four or five-year-old learning to write, this is exactly how it gets. So if you put a piece of paper down in front of a young child and you tell them to write a long word and the first letter is huge and you say to them, write small, uh, they'll just go to the end of the line and wrap around again. And so the handwriting of ancient Rome began to deteriorate when Rome started to go through its transformation and the imperial system and the organization began to get um, a little bit weaker than it had been. So one of the things that Charles orders is that handwriting improves, that documents improve. And so punctuation begins to be brought in and a very careful handwriting, a slower handwriting with basically lined paper called Carolingian minuscule takes place. And it's this kind of careful handwriting that you see. So you can look at what is chicken scratch or a spider web crawling across a page in the year 600. By the year 800, it looks as if it's printed. That's how regular it is. And then that was checked by a senior monk or a senior nun to make sure that there were no errors in it. And the next logical step is to start illuminating those manuscripts. And if you've ever seen, for instance, a page from the book of Kells, a very interesting example of medieval monks and nuns taking Celtic and Gaelic native pagan imagery like circles and squirrels and tying them into the Gospels. So you might have an illuminated initial letter 
or you may have an image of, say, Gabriel announcing to Mary that God had chosen her to be the mother of Jesus, and you might see a fancy representation of that basically in the margin next to the text of what Christians call the Annunciation. So now this big effort begins to take place, and we have a second Benedict. We had Benedict of Nursia around 500. Charlemagne has his own Benedict, and his name is Benedict of Anien. And Benedict of Anien worked under all of these people. Pepin the Short, remember him? Charlemagne, and Charlemagne's son, Louis the Pious. And he took Monte Cassino, and he built a new monastery, his own monastery, a place called Inden. And he made it a second center of Benedictine monasticism. And remember that there's a relationship between Benedictine monasticism and those capitularies and people living a moral life in Charlemagne's empire. And he had a standard perfect copy of Benedict's rule at Inden. Two monks and two nuns from every monastery and convent in Charlemagne's territories had to come and study for a year at Inden. And while they were there, a copy of Benedict's rule was made for them, and they took that copy from a mother monastery or convent to their son or daughter monastery or convent. And you can see how this change in handwriting is fueling this Carolingian Renaissance. Uh, Somebody came from England named Alcuin of York, and he was Charlemagne's tutor. He had studied under Bede, and he taught Charlemagne. So you see these cycles coming together in this Carolingian Renaissance. There is no idea of a Dark Age in this period. What we have is a transformation of Roman culture to a new Christian age. Thank you for listening to another episode of Secrets of the Medieval World. Next week, we'll learn about feudalism, peasant life, and revolution, agricultural revolution. Half-Hour History, Secrets of the Medieval World, from One Day University, is a production of iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans. If you're enjoying the show, leave a review in your favorite podcast app and check out the Curiosity Audio Network for podcasts covering history, pop culture, true crime, and more. School of Humans. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. 
Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com.